This is Donna Carter, and you're listening to Grow on the Go. Uh, Today, I have a special guest with me, and I've been so excited about doing this podcast. Um, Her name is Artis Worsley. Welcome, Artis. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) And um, Artis, we've known of each other. We haven't known each other well, but we've known of each other for many, 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 many years. (laughs) Um, I grew up in the the church that uh, Artis and Pat um, came home to uh, mm-hmm. because they've been missionaries for most of their adult lives, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so I would like you to just explain to me what your call to missions looked like, because for everybody, it's a little bit different. Well, for me, um, it began when an, a cousin of my mom's was staying with us when I was three years old. She wow, was preparing three. to go to the mission field to Nigeria Uh so she spent three months with us while she prepared to go overseas and I fell in love with her she was my hero Uh so after that anytime anybody asked me what are you going to be when you grow up I'm going to be a missionary like cousin Tilly and I kept that that desire and of course her coming home seeing her pictures hearing her stories just fired that desire in me and I thought that was the reason I was a missionary and it wasn't until my second term uh, second home assignment I was speaking at the ladies afternoon prayer group and mom was there and after we were driving home she said that's not why you're a missionary I said no she <laughs> said no she said I wanted to be a missionary and I couldn't because of growing up during the depression had to quit school early mm. so she said I promised God that my first child would be a missionary in my place. Wow. Not knowing that I would be her only daughter. And so she, when she got married, she told dad that. And their commitment. So only child or only daughter? Only daughter. Okay. Three brothers behind oh, me. Oh, wow. Okay. I was the first. But you were still the first child. Yeah. So over the years, mom and dad prayed that I would be a missionary. So it was really their commitment that pushed my right. commitment. And um, so then when Pat and I got married, well, even before that, my idea of being a missionary, I was going to be single. I was going to be a doctor and I was going to work with leprosy patients. So it turned out a little differently. Very different. (laughs) So when Pat and I started dating, we did commit ourselves together as missionaries. And then when we got married, we recommitted ourselves to that direction, never knowing it was going to take 14 years before we'd actually be on the mission field. So that's how we got there. (laughs) So um, why 14 years? I know. Well, um, we started out, of course, we got married we dated for a long time Mm -hmm. and then we got married went to bible college thinking we'd go pat for three years me for two years my two years stayed two years pat's (sighs) extended to six years so Mm -hmm. he ended up going through uh two years bible college two and a half years of university to complete an arts degree and then two years in seminary to complete a master's degree Wow. And then two years home service. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And so you're missionaries with or with the Christian Missionary Alliance. That's correct. Yeah. And it's not easy to be an Alliance missionary. Well, they've got some pretty stringent tapes to it's go through. Very <laughs> stringent. But yeah. from what I understand, 
Alliance missionaries have one of the lowest dropout rates yeah. of any mission in the world. Yeah. And so they make it really hard so that if you get there, you're, you know, that's what you want. <laughs> yeah. And I think probably the biggest dropout is during that first five years or four years, because everything is so different when I'm leading into your next question. Yeah, when, once you're on the field. Yeah. Yes. And is this true? I've heard this, that if you drop out during your first term with the Alliance, you have to pay back. I don't know because I didn't do you it. Didn't so. Drop out. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Well, I think I've been told that, and I have some friends who are sort yeah. of more, more my vintage. You and mm -hmm. Pat have just retired. You're a yeah. little older. Um, who, um, you know, she said to me, if that weren't the case, I would have, mm. I would have <laughs> gone back. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. But they ended up having a long missionary, yeah. missionary career as well. Well, I think during that first few years, everybody goes through, at least a lot of women, maybe not all the men, but women especially, go through the place where they wonder, what am I doing here? Is this really where I should be? It hit me about Christmas. We went out in the um, end of August, mm -hmm. and Christmas, it hit me. And I said to Pat, what am I doing here? And then partly because I'm a nurse, <laughs> and oh, all of these children I that I was trying to treat were dying because I didn't know what I was dealing with. I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have any way of figuring out. And I didn't have the language. Right. So at that point, if I had had an option, I probably would have come home. Right. But Pat said to me, well, that's between you and God. You're going to have to figure this out. Oh, dear. Okay. And so, so that's God be... did figure it out. Yep, oh. you're here because I want you here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And how did, how did you come to that realization that God was saying that to you? Well, um... You know, when you're in the depths of despair about, like I said, all these children dying. In three months, I had seen 17 small children and babies die. Oh. The first one on the first day there in my arms. Oh, my. So this was really discouraging. But then I started Not thinking, just discouraging, traumatic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, when you're in a, ba a place like that, where do you go? So I went to the Psalms. That's my, my comfort place, you know. Mm -hmm. And in that, I don't know which psalm it was that I was reading, but I suddenly realized again, I thought I'd learned it before, but again, God is the one who called me here. He is the one in control of life and death. And what I say or do has to be directed by him. So it came to the place where I said, okay, God, you're God, I'm not. Right. <laughs> and whatever you say, I will do. Boy, there's and, a lot of freedom yeah. in getting to that place. Yeah. And then as I looked back, I saw, well, there were a lot of discouraging things. But in that time, we had had a measles epidemic. And of course, those people had never had measles, you know. So it was just right through the, the whole community. And in that epidemic, we even had one little girl who got meningitis as a complication. Right. And I had no intravenous, nothing to treat them except antibiotics by oral. And she couldn't take oral because she was comatose. Oh. And yet in spite of that, through prayer and God's help, we pulled her through and we had no other complications, no other deaths during that. Wow. So I saw again the faithfulness of God when I was faithful. And I don't understand why all those other babies died. Right. 
he knows. Yeah, we don't get the answers yeah, sometimes yeah. that we want. Okay, so you talked about the kind of conditions you were working, but you've mm-hmm. not told us where you were. Okay. And so tell us how you decided on where you went. <laughs> I don't know what to call it because it's not the same name anymore, no, right? It, it's changed its name so many times. And mm-hmm. actually, we did not decide to go there. This is the funny thing. Okay. Um, when when Pat and I got married, his interest was India. Mine was Africa. Right. But when we applied to the Alliance as missionaries, we applied openly, saying we'd be willing to where, go wherever they wanted us to go. So at that time... So they picked the hardest field there was. Well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at that time, well, Pat had to do a, a field study during his final years of seminary. And so we got a pre-appointment indication that we were going to Indonesia. So Indonesia at that time under the alliance was two different field administrations. There was the Indonesian field and the Irian Jaya field, as it was called then. Which now, is now Papua, Papua New Guinea. Right? No, not Papua New Guinea. Oh. Papua Indonesia. Oh, <laughs> two different oh. two different countries, uh, but see, on the same I, island. <laughs> I got an education. Yeah. Okay. So we, as we were preparing to go during those years that we were in ministry in Canada, in Coburg, Ontario, in fact. Every time people say, said we were going to Erie and Jaya, we'd say, no, that's the one place we're sure we're not going. <laughs> so it was quite funny when we got the appointment letter um, April, just before we left, saying we'd been appointed to Erie and Jaya. I said to Pat, how did this happen? I feel like Sarah, I'm laughing. <laughs> so we, when we, a few years later, when we came home our first time and I was talking to the um, director of missions at that time, who was from New York, I said, how did they send us to, to Erie and Jaya? Because at the same time, two other couples went to the other part of Indonesia and we traveled together. He hmm. said, well, it's because you're a nurse. And if he knew oh. how little nursing I did, it was hilarious. <laughs> but I think God really wanted us there. Um, it was uh, an exciting place to be during the time we were there. So, yeah. So t- was- tell me a little bit about what the conditions were like there when you arrived. <laughs> well, um, very different. There are a lot of things I had to learn to do differently. Just to start with travel, of course, the only way we could get in and out of where we lived was by small aviation, mission aviation aircraft. Okay. Um uh, Cessna 180 or so a tiny little plane. Tiny, yeah. So, and it was at least an hour, uh, an hour to the coast one direction, two hours to the coast the other direction, depending which way we went. So that was the first thing that was really different. The second thing was the people were very different. <laughs> we got there, we couldn't understand a word that they said. Nobody right. knew, knew English. And dressed was, very differently. Was anybody clothed? Well, in their kind of clothing, oh, yes. Sure, of course. The but... ladies in their grass skirts and net bags and the men in their gourds. And uh, you, you, wow. learned, you learned what it really meant when somebody said, I was scared out of my gourd. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and it must have been hard. Like, where do you even look when you're talking to people? <laughs> well, when you look looking? at their faces. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, but um, the thing mm-hmm. was, I mean, the what really hit me right away was how dirty they were because they had in their cultural lore that to bathe was inviting disease. So they didn't get wet unless they got caught in a rainstorm. So I remember thinking as we, oh, and the other thing was 
not all of the landing strips were flat. We had uphill landing strips. So that was an interesting experience. Wow, no kidding. But I remember the first time we landed at this place where we were going to study language. it's very hilly, right? Very mountainous. No mountainous, yeah. 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 So I looked out and I thought, God, how can I love all these dirty people? But as I got to know them, I did love them. But that was the first thing that was different. Second thing was cook on a wood stove. I'd never done that before. Use a kerosene refrigerator, um, a gasoline-operated ringer washing machine. So no electricity? Just a little bit. Okay. (laughs) The first day we were there, the two ladies who were, the single ladies who were there, said to us, now the generator will come on about 5.30 and we'll have electricity from then until about 9.30. And at, then it, in the morning or in the night? evening? In the in evening, evening, okay. It's dark by 5.30. Oh, okay. So I said, and then what do you do after 9.30? I'm go to used, bed. I'm coming to Canada where right. we stay up late. Right. No, you go to bed because you have to be up at five o'clock the next morning to give reports to the pilots on what the weather's like. So that oh, was very okay. different for me. Um what else was different? Oh, the insects, oh. <laughs> cockroaches, two to two and a half inches long. So that's oh. five to eight inches, eight centimeters. Oh, that's terrifying. Um, spiders as big as tarantulas, and lo- some of them looked like tarantulas. Um, what else was different? Oh, like everything. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just trying to think <laughs> if food? I had anything. I'm sure else. your food would have been so different. Well, Actually, food wasn't as different as as it could have been because the local diet was just sweet potatoes, morning, noon, and night. But there were other things available. And um, when we first went out, they did a lot of ordering from Australia. So we could get a lot of things in canned, like canned wieners, canned cheese, canned butter, canned canned oatmeal, everything in cans, which was safe because the rats couldn't get into them so easily. But we could buy flour and a lot of those things. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing that was not available was toilet paper. We had to take all our toilet paper with us. Could you imagine four years worth of toilet paper? No, I mean that's. I mean we we buy our toilet paper at Costco, so we're used to big quantities. But, yeah, but I, four years, four years, and yeah. how do you even figure that out? Well, we were we did pretty well. We took one whole forty-five gallon drum of toilet paper. Right. You know, we had it packed around other things, but by the time we emptied it all out, it was one drum, and that lasted us until I think about three months before we were to come back on home assignment and by that time we could actually buy it it was like crepe paper but it was toilet paper yeah it was something yeah so that was one of the things that was very different um yeah just the whole aspect of life life took longer yeah um because you're cooking on wood stove takes longer to heat up anything sure and you make everything from scratch all my bread i had to bake by my mother and you know anything we wanted we had to make right even granola if i wanted granola i made it you made it yeah. (laughs) yeah right so that was a lot of time consuming so what kind of changes did you see over the years you were there okay big changes yeah by the time we uh left there were at least six supermarkets in jayapura the capital city that we could order from or buy from. and so how far away was that well that was two hours flying time but by that time we were living in jayapura okay (laughs) yeah and we and when we lived there we had uh, electricity all day long, unless there was a blackout. Right, which, <laughs> which happens a lot in the developing yeah. world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when we lived interior, of course, all our water came from rainwater. 
when we lived on the coast, then we had um, city water supply okay. and city sewage. All right. So that was one of the changes. Some of the other changes would be communication. <laughs> when we first went out there, you had either snail mail or the office in Jayapur had telex. Do you even remember such a thing as a telex, telex. machine? <laughs> yeah, no, not well, vaguely. <laughs> and the first, yeah. our linguist, the one that So that, used, that's like a telegram, isn't it? Well, it's sort of, it does, it's like, it, um, it works like a telegram, except it prints out a tape with long, long strings, you know, so your letters oh, are all strung oh, out in its string. <laughs> yeah, so that was you when need, we like first you went. You need out. scrolls almost. Yeah, and okay. telephones, if we wanted to make a telephone call, the only place we could do it would be from the capital city. And you called the operator, gave them your number, and then you hung up and waited until they called you back half an hour, so, an hour later. You know, if you had parents who were elderly or whatever, or something yeah. awful happened, like you might not find out about it for yeah. six months. Well, well, it wasn't weeks, quite, anyway. Telex would, would get oh, it telex. there faster. Okay, okay. Um, what was it like raising your son in that kind of a place? Well, it, the pros of that was that he had a lot of freedom. He was the only white child in the village where we lived. Well, wow. in both the villages that we lived in until he was almost 12, I think. And by that time, another family with younger children had moved in. So he had a lot of freedom. He'd go out. Everybody knew who Rob was. And of course, well, one would think he yeah. looked a little different from everyone <laughs> And all else. I'd have to do if I wanted him, I'd just go out the back door and holler, Rob. And somebody would hear me and go and find him for me. Amazing. So he had a lot of freedom. Um, there was a small hospital in the village that we lived most of our time in, a, an Indonesian hospital. And the Indonesian doctor had become good friends of ours. He was the only other English-speaking person around that we could communicate with. and. Um, so he let Rob come into the operating room when he was doing wow. sewing up lacerations and things like that. So he had a lot of freedom. That was one big pro for him. Mm -hmm. Another thing was um, the opportunity to gain a different worldview and value yes. system. You know, because here we're pretty um, focused on individual rights yes. and um, things that make us happy or content, right. not so much for the other people. But the community in the rest of the world is very people-oriented, not purpose or task-oriented, but people-oriented. Right. So he grew up with that. And to this day, he never has a stranger. It's just a friend he hasn't met yet. Right. <laughs> oh, he, lovely. he can talk to anybody. Right. And um, so that's a big pro oh. for him learning three languages by the time he was five years old wow. and being fluent in them for his age. Yes. You know, that's another big pro for no him. Kidding. The con was the fact that he had to go away to boarding school. Mm. And that wasn't all bad. It was harder on us probably at first than it was on him. Yes. He looked forward to it because that's where all his friends were. Sure. And of course, being the only white kid in the village, he was a little king and he could have developed a tyrant oh, mentality. Yeah. But getting back to the boarding school, everybody's like that. So I've got to get along with all these other right. little kings. Right. You know, so, <laughs> other little king. so that was good for him. The other thing was that, um, well, he expressed it best. When we came home after he graduated from high school, he spent two weeks at Camp Camisol as a junior counselor. He'd never been able to go as a, a kid, mm -hmm. but he went there as a junior counselor. We came home and he said, mom, he said, people often feel sorry for me because I had to go to boarding school. 
But he said, I always knew you and dad loved me. Mm. I always had teachers who took a real interest in me. And he said, except for one year, I had really good dorm parents. He said, some of those kids at camp don't know if anybody loves them. He said, Uh, they're worse off than I ever was. Right. You know, so he had that attitude. So it was sort of a Mm. pro and sort of a con for him. Right. Um, The other thing was losing contact with family, you know, blood family. Because when you're away for four years at a time, especially in a culture that is so far removed from Mm -hmm. North American culture, it's really hard to connect with family when you come back. And especially nieces and nephews. They just don't get your life. They know me. um, They know we know them. And we've had some good times together. But it's not the same as the kids that were on the field. When we were there, you know, we can right. connect with them any place. Yeah. It's like we were family right. immediately. Yeah. So that was the big hot thing. And then I didn't realize that probably the biggest sacrifice was my mom and dad with the grandson because they did not really know him. Now that I'm a grandma and my kids are grandkids yeah, are far away, I realize how hard yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. can't imagine so, that either. So those were some of the mm-hmm. challenges. That we, and and that grandparents are are some of the um is one of the big things that keeps couples from going to the field because they don't want to lose touch with their grandchildren yeah yeah Yeah. um okay so um tell me just briefly because we have so much we could talk about and i really want to get to some of these deeper things but Mm -hmm. um not that this isn't deep but how did your relationship with your husband grow as you served so far from home (laughs) well like i said for many times many of the years we served together we were the only English-speaking people in the community. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure so, you did eventually learn the language. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah we actually did. But when uh, experiences are so very different, yes. it's harder sometimes to build relationships. Yes, absolutely. But because of that, Pat and I became very dependent on each other mm-hmm. um, for not only for emotional support and just for friendship, doing things together, having fun together. Mm-hmm. That's very important to laugh together. But also um, as spiritually challenging each other, you know, because we each had ministry, some things that we were doing together, we were always a team, but some things that we would do, do separately, like um, I did a lot of uh, writing of um Bible lessons for women, Sunday school lessons, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So Pat wasn't so much involved in that, but he was the one who was saying, well, what did you, what did you come up with for a lesson from this? What's the application for mm. this? You know, So we worked off of each other. I prodded him on the language because I, I, I um, acquired languages easier oh, than he does. Yeah, yeah. You know, So I prodded him on the language, kept mm-hmm. him going forward, and he prodded me on other things. So, yeah. Yeah. You so didn't have the luxury of not speaking to each other for two days. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I have never done that anyway, yeah. but I know some couples go a whole week without yeah. speaking to each other. Well, if we ever got really mm-hmm. upset with each other, I'd lock myself in the bathroom for 15 minutes and <laughs> get then, over it. By then you had to get over it. That's yeah. right. Okay. So how did your relationship with God grow as a result of being in this place that yeah. was so strange to you? Yeah. Well, again, God was the only place mm. I could turn, you know, mm-hmm. in times of trouble, in times of challenge, where else do you go except to God? But I think the biggest relation or the biggest change in my relationship, you know, growing up in the church as a kid, I never really understood what sin was. 
Mm-hmm. And this is strange to say, you know, that it no, took I me 35, 40 years before I realized what it really was. Because all the years I'd grown up, I thought, I don't do this, and I don't do yeah. that, I don't do this, I'm not guilty of that. And I remember reading, you know, Jesus saying, to whom much has been forgiven, much much love will be shown. Mm-hmm. The person who's been forgiven much will show much love. That's mm-hmm. how it goes. And I thought, well, I don't really understand this because I haven't done these things. And it wasn't until, like I say, I was in my 40s when I realized wanting to control my own life was my sin. Mm. And I like to be in control. <laughs> I like to direct things. <laughs> you know, do. and over do. and over, God had to teach me, you're not in control. There are things that are complete. Well, most things are out of our control. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, sometimes we just don't know it. Right. We yeah, we think we're yeah. in control. Yeah, you're right. But like those babies dying, I had mm-hmm. no control over that. Um, Pat being gone for three days and I'm not sure where he is. I had no control over that. Now right. I can either worry and stew about it or hand it over to God. Mm-hmm. And so that became a turning point in my relationship with God to realize that wanting my own will and not saying your will be done. That was my sin that had to be dealt with. And then accept his direction and submit to his leadership. Mm. So, yeah, that was my big change. Mm, That's so good. Um, What miracles did you see or experience? Well, we had one lady. I'll tell you this one story because it stands out. A lady had fallen into a sleep by the fire. Their fires are on the floor of their houses. Mm. And she'd fallen asleep by the fire, rolled over and burned her foot so badly oh. that the bone could be seen. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know the rest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the artist just lost her notes, but she's, she doesn't need them anyway. And um, mm-hmm. so she wasn't in the same village as I was. Another missionary was there. And she called me about this. And I did go over and see the woman. And I said, well, the only oh, thing that can be done. The pain she was in. Yeah. Well, actually, it burned so badly that the nerves oh, were the burned nerves too. Were, yeah. And um, so I said, the only thing that can be done is her come back to my village where the doctor is and have that foot amputated. She said, No, I can't do that. I don't have the money. I said, Well, we could help you. She said, No, I'm going to trust God to take care of it. Well, two weeks and later, she was a believer. At this she point. was a believer. Yeah. yeah. Two weeks later, um, my friend Alfreda Taves Vanderbile had gone to that village and she called me up on the radio and she said artist you won't believe this that woman's foot is gone and it's like a perfectly amputated stunt that was god's doing it just fell off it just came off god amputated it yeah and she said it looked the skin was underneath just like a perfect stunt surgery (laughs) wow so that's one miracle i wonder why god didn't you know restore the foot but i guess we don't get to ask those questions do we well that's pretty amazing what what's one thing god taught you over your life that you never want to forget well god is god and i'm not yeah that is a big Um, one they i guess the big thing is that he's totally trustworthy Mm -hmm. you know sometimes people doubt is god really listening to me Uh, i remember when rob was 19 and we were back in Indonesia and he was here in North America and we lost lost touch with him for three months didn't know where he was what he was oh. doing and of course as a mom you start thinking is he into drugs is he into this that? Oh, right and, but finally he did call but during that time I relied on God God I said God he's your son he's yours more than he's mine yes. and I trust you and Eventually, Rob called us, and he'd just been visiting friends. <laughs> so, oh, so good. But, you know, so that's the one a second mm. thing that I would say God really taught me. 
And then that he never fails. His love never fails, but he never fails in his faithfulness. His mm. mercies are new every morning, yeah. like Jeremiah said. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So those are the things God's taught me over my life. We only have a few more seconds, sadly, but I would like to know what one scripture has been the most meaningful to you over the course of your life. <laughs> well, yeah. it's hard to pick one, right? It is hard to pick one. I suppose I could say John 3.16 because that's a very important one. But I think maybe the best one that I would have is Joshua 1.8. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's my, my, that's beautiful. And you know, where you went, yeah. wherever you went, was a kind of scary place in many ways. Well, going through an airplane accident, that was kind of scary. You oh, know? no kidding. Yeah. And so I just want to say to our listeners, whatever you're going through right now, and wherever you feel God is leading you, um, remember Artis's story. And remember that scripture, that wherever you go, God will be your strength. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so good, Artis. Thank you so much for joining You're me welcome. today. I want to rem, uh, remind our, 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 our listeners to subscribe on your favorite app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, or listen any, anytime using the Joy Radio app. I'm Donna Carter, and this is Grow on the Go. Thanks for listening to Grow on the Go. Share this episode on social media and find more great programs at faithstrongtoday.com.